The Ringer's music critic Rob Harvilla curates and explores 60 iconic songs from the 90s that define the decade. Rob is joined by a variety of guests to break it all down as they turn back the clock. Check out 60 songs that explain the 90s exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Everybody, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. Thanks for tuning in to Black on the Air. It's good to have you guys. It is a joy to bring this episode today. It's one of my favorite types of conversations. Um, David Oyelowo, the great actor, is making his directorial debut in a movie called The Waterman. It's really, really a cool film, family film, too. Um, Everybody can see it, and it's in theaters right now. So get your vaccination (laughs) and go see it. Uh, But it was a real fun conversation because I love talking about craft, you know, with people like David. He's so interesting, such an interesting person, you know, his point of view and just his road and everything. Love talking about that stuff. So... All of you people that love that kind of stuff, talking about acting, directing, and all that kind of stuff, you will enjoy this conversation. I think you'll enjoy it anyway. It's fun. It's a fun one. I just got back into town, took a little time off. I was in Hawaii. It's my first time traveling since the pandemic. Needed to get away. You guys know the couple months that I've had. Um, Needed to take a little break. And, man, going there... Uh, it was interesting, you know, with, I'm, I'm speaking pandemic wise right now. It felt, yeah, it felt fine. But man, coming back, I felt like the dam had broken. Everybody was, was traveling. Now the airport was packed. I did not know how to feel. I have not been around that many people in, in such a long time, guys. I'll be honest with you. It was a little scary. It was a little bit disorienting. Um, I definitely had my mask. Uh, I do not care what Biden said. I was not kidding around. But I wanted to talk about that a little bit because we're in a new phase of this whole, you know, pandemic year. It's been such a bizarre year. And, you know, a lot of people have gotten vaccinated. I'll speak particularly about America right now, for those of you listening in other places. But a lot of people have been vaccinated here. You know, some people are resisting it. Certainly it's not the whole population, but many people have. And many of the restrictions are being lifted. Some states are out in front of that and some are slowly coming up, depending on where they are. But the president himself said you, if you are vaccinated, completely vaccinated, that you basically don't have to wear a mask. And a lot of people don't quite know how to handle that. I actually feel pretty good about it. I believe in vaccinations. You know, I joke about them, of course, and that sort of thing. But ultimately, 
I am a science believer. I was like, okay, we got vaccinated. That should work. I understand there's a risk here and there, but for the most part, you can still be smart about it, you know, but if you're out taking a walk, there's no reason to wear a mask, you know? In fact, I remember when I was in Hawaii, it was real windy at some point, you know, I have my mask on and I'm like, look, if COVID catches me in this wind, good on you, COVID. You're just too fucking good at this point. There's nothing I can do about it. So, so you win at this point, you know, but you know, I wanted to ask the question, how did wearing a mask become so fucking political, you guys? What the serious fuck? I mean, who would have thought at the beginning when this all started that wearing a mask would be a point of division? It's craziness. And a lot of this, I have to, I, I have to blame it on the right, you know, and especially on Trumpies and on Donald Trump. And I know I do do a lot of. Uh, I'm the type of person that you know I like to look at both sides of an argument. It's not so much a political position; it's kind of who I am as a person. And I know it makes a lot of people mad these days. Many people do not <laughs> do not want to hear <laughs> the both sides thing, and I get that. And I know I frustrate some of you guys out there, and some of you come at me on Twitter and stuff. How dare Larry Wilmore look at both sides of an issue, you know? And I read that and I go, what? That sounds weird, you know, but I get it. I get it. And I understand why you say that. I get it completely. I understand why it frustrates you, but that's okay. We can frustrate each other and still engage in conversation. That does not threaten me at all. I think it's good for us to get engaged in these conversations and to be, for them to trigger us in whatever way. That means we're talking about something important, right? So that's cool. I don't mind you guys being upset about that because that's that's just who I am. I'm not, that's not going to change. But this is an interesting issue, the whole mask issue, because one side of this issue is very guilty about making this a problem. And that's those motherfucking Trumpies last year and Donald Trump himself, because masks should not have been an issue. And people, they like to try to blame it on Fauci at the beginning because his messaging wasn't very clear when he first said that, yeah, you don't need masks. (laughs) My Fauci impression. You know, he was kind of downplaying it. He later said that he kind of downplayed it because he felt there may have been a shortage of PPE. But, you know, his hands are a little dirty there by not being clear in his messaging. But shortly thereafter, he was very clear. And I think most reasonable people didn't look at what he said before. They're like, okay, maybe he's got new information or whatever. And they just accepted it and moved on. Most reasonable people. I have no problem saying that because I believe the unreasonable people, for some reason, something in their brain kept making them want to make him stick with what he said before. Like a person isn't able to look at new data and change their mind, which is so unreasonable. It's crazy that people would use what he said before as a reason not to do something, which is bullshit, by the way. The real, it's not because they're not listening to Fauci, because if they're really listening to him and say, well, he said this before, and why can't I do that? Well, motherfucker, if he means, if his words mean so much to you, why aren't you listening to him now? So listening to him is not the issue. You just want to fucking do what you want to do. And what you want to do is follow that stupid motherfucker, Donald Trump, who was mocking the use of masks and that sort of thing to kind of, who knows why he was doing that. I, I still don't know why Trump was doing that. I, I Part of it, he's just, I think he's just an idiot fool or whatever. But he did represent a movement out there of people who, for whatever reason, at the height of a pandemic, at the beginning of it, when we're, we were most afraid, we were most afraid, you know, 
that they were resisting this uh, group effort. And that, to me, is very troublesome. Because here's the thing. Here's the statement I want to get to. People say it's a matter of principle and all that. But let's talk about that. And let's, let me describe how I feel the right and the left operate in general terms. And these are generalizations. These are my generalizations. They're not meant to be hardcore definitions. They're just generalizations I'm using for the sake of argument right now. Let's define the right, the basic position of the right. For the right, the liberty of the individual is the most important. And when the liberty of the individual is protected, that is what is best for society. That is a basic position and principle of the right. Once again, I've been talking in general terms. And I'm talking about people who generally operate from the right. And those are the things that animate them. From the left, it's kind of the opposite. The left kind of operates out of what is the best thing for society? Let's think about society as a whole. What is the best thing for society? And once we consider what is best for society, we can infer that then that is what is best for the individual. When we think about the group, for what is best, that should be what's best for you. That is what animates the left. When you look at even the programs that they want, you know, it's what's best for everybody first. Therefore, that is what is best for me. Okay. That, and by the way, these general positions are why when you're attacking the right or you're attacking the left, like when you attack the right, the attack is that the right is selfish because they're thinking about the individual first. And when you're attacking the left, you're saying they're totalitarian because, you know, it's the state that is more important to them. That's why those arguments are used, because that is the positions that they operate from. Right. But the masks. OK, so here's what I believe. When you operate out of principles, there's nothing wrong with that, you know, in the general, when things are, you know, normal. But in crisis, crisis situations to me, societal crisis situations, not necessarily personal. I'm talking macro more than micro. Things like war, you know, famine, things like that, whatever it is, terrorist acts, pandemic, societal crisis situations really, really test principles. They really do, you know. And by test, what I mean to say is what is more important right now? Adhering to a principle that you have, even if it may cause harm, or being flexible enough to accept that something is messy right now, that your principles cannot deal with that in the way that it can in normal everyday life. Because we're in a crisis situation, you're going to have to deal with this a little differently that you did not count on. That's what happens in a crisis. You know, sometimes your principles line up with how to deal with it. And sometimes they don't. <laughs> That's what makes it a crisis. In the case of the mass on what happened from my point of view is that this crisis lined up more with the principles of the left than it did on the right. And that's why the people on the right were very unreasonable last year with um, resisting masks because they're not wrong with wanting to um, hold on to what are the rights of the individual in terms of liberty, but they are unreasonable to insist on those rights during a pandemic. That is the distinction that I'm making. That is an unreasonable position. And to make the people that are adhering to those 
crisis situation, looking out for what's best in society, like there's something wrong with them, like they're running roughshod over our rights, like there's something being trampled over. That is not a fair assessment of what's going on. It is unreasonable. And that, I believe, is what has blinded the right. And I'll even go further. I think it's the Trumpy right even more so during this whole mask situation. And even when the left gets out of control and gets real judgy <laughs> with the wearing a mask or whatever, that's still not as bad as how dangerous it is for the people on the right who insist that masks were not important at all, you know, and just throwing away the idea of being safe and all that kind of stuff for what's good for society. And by the way, what's interesting to me is those right and left positions, they're not necessarily for every issue. Like I've talked about this before, abortion is one of those issues where people on the left actually have a right point of view when it comes to abortion and people on the right actually have a liberal point of view when it comes to abortion. A lot of people don't realize that and I'll explain to you. On the left, people believe in the liberty of a woman's choice is the primary importance in the issue of abortion. The liberty of a woman to make her own decision, her individual liberty, the government should not trample or be involved or get in the way of her making that choice, a woman making that choice. Her individual liberty is most important. That is a conservative position. On the right, (laughs) however, they believe that the fetus is not able to protect itself in this decision the woman is making and that the government should step in and prevent this from happening. That is a liberal position that the state needs to take action that, sorry, individual liberty, There's the fetus cannot protect itself. The state must come in and offer protection here. I don't care about your choice. Government has to come in and intervene. That is a liberal position. What is best? They believe that is what is best for society. We're not talking about what's best for the individual. So it's interesting that it's flipped on the issue of abortion. But in this situation, the right is completely out of hand. And now it gets, it's so, it's this reverse Orwellian, <laughs> Trumpian thing going on. Now that the president says you don't have to wear masks, you know, people don't know how to act at all, which is very bizarre, you know. And people just, you know what it is? People just don't want to be fucking ridiculed just for doing what they think is the right thing. That is a thing on both sides, by the way, but especially on the left. And I think some people on the left feel, are feeling guilty about one about wearing masks right now. And I want to tell you guys, don't feel guilty. If you want to still wear a mask primarily, that is okay. <laughs> don't worry about being ridiculed. It, you're, it's okay. Don't ridicule yourself, people who aren't wearing masks, because, you know, as the president says, it's okay. But it is not okay to ridicule people who still want to feel safe. We, we're going through a fucking pandemic, you guys. The needs of our society kind of trumps this individual liberty right now. Sorry, people on the right, but it does. Look at India and try to have a disagreement about this right now. It's terrible what's happening in India. And so it is interesting to me of how your principles stand up in life and death situations. And it's not that your principles have to be dropped or you don't have principles. It's just that it gets messy. It gets messy. And so you have to you have to evaluate information a little differently, you know? And sometimes it happens in the opposite way. It's not always that the 
well, it happens on that side, but people don't acknowledge that it gets a little messy. And here I'll go back to the both sides things. In some situations, um, like the Middle East right now, what's happening in Israel and Palestine, that is a messy situation, you guys. That shit is messy. If you listen to the pro-Israel people and you do it with sympathetic ears, you would go, man, I completely get what they're doing. And if you listen to Palestine, you know, the people there with sympathetic ears, you go, oh, man, fuck. I completely get what's going on. You know, that is a messy situation. You know, your principles are going to get fucked up you know, in trying to figure out that because it has been clear that uh, like our intervention here when there's an agenda or whatever has not quite worked. Which is one of the reasons why I I don't weigh in on the Middle East because I honestly think that the situation there needs to be resolved by the people that live there, that are under those conditions, that have been going through this themselves, and who have way more information than we have over here in America when we don't know what news outlet to trust and how they're telling this story and whether we're hearing what really happened in those situations. I honestly, in this situation, I honestly don't know what to completely trust in terms of where that truth really lies and how to resolve it. You know, I think there's elements of truth in all of that, but I do believe that the resolution of that is a messy situation that both sides over there are going to have to figure out. And they've been trying to do that for a long time and it may take a long time to do, but I don't think it's going to be America. I don't think it takes, you know, uh, what was his name? Trump's boy, whatever his name was, going over there. Um, Ivanka's husband. I can't remember that nigga's name. <laughs> that motherfucker's name. <laughs> He's already out of my mind. But it's not going to take, you know, an American going over there and imposing their idea of of what needs to be done. It's going to have to be resolved over there. And you know what? I just hope it can happen soon because it is a bad situation. That's the most I can say about it. And I know for some of you, it sounds both sides or whatever, but it really isn't. You know what it is? It's messy. That's what it is. All right. All right. Coming up, David Oyelowo, you guys, for The Waterman. Having a good conversation. All right, you guys, welcome back. Um, honored and pleased to have this gentleman, a big fan of his. Uh, you all know him as an actor, but I mean, he's an actor, producer. Uh, he'll probably come paint your house. Uh, <laughs> 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 and, uh, he does it all and is now making his directorial debut in The Waterman, a real fascinating film that you guys uh, have to see. David Oyelowo, welcome to Black on the Air. Thank you so much for having me, Larry. Hey man, congrats on the film. What a, a splashy, not to, no pun intended, but what a splashy <laughs> debut for The Waterman. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of it. It's, it's yeah. rare when you are setting out to make a movie that what you had in your head is what yeah. ends up on the screen. So I, you know, wow. it's been a, a great journey. Yeah, this has been a particular journey for you, right? Because you uh, you found the script as a producer. Is that right? 
That's exactly right. That's exactly right. it was on the blacklist um, on two, in 2015. For those yeah. who don't know what the blacklist is, yes, please the, explain that for for our black yeah. on the air audience. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. It was started by a brother named Franklin Leonard, yep. and it's the uh, top 100 unproduced scripts in Hollywood. It's selected yeah. by industry professionals, and yeah. to hit that list is very prestigious. Yeah, it's a real um, honor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of those films have gone on to be produced. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, The Waterman was on the list in 2015. And uh-huh. it was a film, the likes of which I was looking for because I had loved films like E.T., yeah. The Goonies, Stand yeah. By Me, growing up. You grew up on, on those, the- right? That's right in your wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I loved oh. them. And now that I have kids, I had to always yeah. go back to the 80s to share that kind of movie with my kids. So yeah. I was looking for something like this. So as you say, I, I originally came on purely as a producer. I knew I probably was going to play the father. We had a director. He mm-hmm. eventually exited stage left. And so we were left with a an actor in the ch- in the shape of wonderful Lonnie Chavis. Oh, he was amazing. Um, yes, yeah, so so good in the movie. People may know him from This Is Us. He plays Randall in in that in that show. Yeah. And um Shiv Hans, Shivani Rawat's company were financing. We had a start date, but you know, our director had gone and so it was the writer Emma Nadell who actually turned to me and said, "I think you should do this and uh, you know, much to my <laughs> shock, much to my shock, everyone was on board and that's how I jumped in. Okay, I want to talk about directing that process, but I want to start with producing because it seems like this became your jam like pretty early on. I mean, you were, I would say in terms of chronology, pretty young age kind of turned your mind to producing. Well, why did that happen? And how old were you when you first started thinking, you know what, I want to produce things too, as well as act in them? It's a, it's a great question because it was born out of necessity, really. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, most people will know me if they know me from Selma, uh, the film in which I play Dr. King. Yep. In that film, you know, I first got the script in 2007. Mm-hmm. We didn't get to make the film till 2014. Yeah. And in those seven years, you know, I had felt a real calling to get that film done. Mm-hmm. It went through so many hurdles, such wow. a circuitous route to get it yeah. made. I Such went different through, times now, too, when you think about that. That's even well, before Obama was president, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, that was before Oscar So White. In, in, yes, as, yes, wow. right. That's right. <laughs> you know, in fact, Selma had a big hand in, in starting Oscar So White because that's that right. was the first year where there were, there were no, um, uh, actors of color in the nominations and yeah. people had loved Selma and they'd loved Ava's work. They, they, mm-hmm. you know, responded to me. And, and so people were not happy. And so anyway, it, 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 it was that journey of be, having a hand for me of bringing Ava DuVernay onto that project, mm-hmm. bringing Oprah Winfrey onto that project, just moving the needle every day in some way alongside Path A and Plan B, right. the other production companies involved. And that's what producing is. You basically go to war. To that's what producing is. Done. You just call Ava, you just call Oprah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so you made that sound so easy. So how does one, well, first, how did you know about Ava back in that day before she had, before the world really knew about Ava? She started as a publicist, I believe, right? She had been a publicist yeah. for well over a decade. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, she made a film called um, I Will Follow. 
Um, and she made it for Mm -hmm. $50,000. And I first actually uh, encountered her on a, uh, she was doing an interview on CNN um, about her, her small film that was gaining traction. And then not soon afterwards, I was on a plane with a guy who was watching his iPad. I happened to be on a show that he was watching on his iPad. He turned to me and said, is this you I'm watching? I I said, yes. He said, okay, you're an actor. Is it a good idea to invest in movies? I said, why? Oh. He said, because this, this lady, Ava DuVernay, just approached me to put $50,000 into her movie. No I way. Said, I said, oh, that name rings a bell. Can, can I read the script and I'll give you my advice? I read the script. Not only did I tell him to put money in, I called her because her number was on the cover of the script. No way. Uh, as I got off the plane and I said, look, you don't know me. My name is David Ayelowo. Uh, I just read your script. Please, can I be in it? She said, uh, you were on my shortlist, but you've done all these. Because I, at that point, I had done, I think, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I'd done The Help. I'd done yeah. uh, The Butler, I think. And uh-huh. um, she said, I never thought, because it was a $200,000 movie, tiny, sure. tiny budget film. Yeah. So that's how I met Ava. That's how I went on to do her film. And that's how yeah. I knew I had been in the presence of a genius and then went to war to have her be the one to direct Selma. And did Ava help direct you to Oprah? No, I had actually met Oprah mm-hmm. on The Butler, Lee Daniels. Oh, yeah, of course. Butler, right, right. Uh, yeah. where, where we played mother and son. Yeah. And I, at that point, we had, you know, I, I, I may be sounding, making it sound way more easy than it is because... No, this is fascinating because people don't know what is producing like it's right. such a mystery people ask me all the time i started my career in much the same way i was doing stand-up comedy and the type of comedy i was doing political comedy at the time hollywood wasn't really hiring that you right. know so i thought i need to be writing and producing and just carving my own kind of directions why well, i started producing initially yeah i, I mean yeah. you know necessity is the mother ne- of invention exactly as, as they say i mean mm-hmm. you know the the what happened while I was doing The Butler, I had shown Oprah my audition tape mm-hmm. um, f- f- to play Dr. King. And she had said to me, mm. I truly believe that you are destined to do this and I will do everything I can to help you. Wow. And the problem we had had, Larry, is in that era in Hollywood, mm-hmm. there, was th- there were these, these, these falsehoods that had consistently kept films like this from getting made. Mm-hmm. It was black doesn't travel. So, you know, it's a purely domestic right. uh, uh, film. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the budget should therefore be smaller. Right. Uh, black people don't want to see black pain. White people don't want to feel white guilt. So mm-hmm. all of these reasons were given for not being able to make the film at the commensurate budget. So you had directors like Stephen Frears, Paul Haggis, Mm -hmm. uh, Spike Lee, Lee Daniels was actually the one who eventually cast me. None of them could get the film made because they were constrained by a budget that was about a quarter, maybe half of what the film should be made for. Yeah, just too limiting. You can't really do it justice. Yeah, Too limited. Whereas you would see films like the J. Edgar Hoover movie being yeah, made $60 yeah. million. Dollars. <laughs> yes, and then exactly. The, the Dr. King movie was being offered $15 million. Yeah. Uh, and, and it wasn't until Ava, who was coming off of a $200,000 movie, who, when I took her to the company, said, okay, guys, give me a number. 
I will mm-hmm. basically back into it. I will, I will make this film for whatever you are prepared to give me. And it yeah. was about $15 million. It wasn't until wow. she wrote the script. Yeah. Oprah actually ended up putting some of her own money in um, wow. to be able to get the thing made. And so, you know, it, it was, um, it was such a grind. And you're talking about such the a most famous yeah. American, yeah. not just African-American, in the 20th century. The only one that has a holiday named after him. And we were struggling to get a movie made about him. So, you know, that, that was so egregious a reality that we just couldn't accept yeah. it, which is why we went to war to get it done. It's amazing. It's such a lesson of grit and how to do something. You must have learned so much. You were probably just unconsciously becoming a producer while you were doing the uh, Butler and watching all those things and learning the machinations. Uh, were you? Did you find yourself as an actor when you were acting on things, just absorbing all these types of things? Uh, at, were you conscious of that at the time? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And again, it was out of necessity. I mean, the reason I we even started my production company, Yoruba Saxon, mm-hmm. it was because I simply wasn't getting the kind of roles that right. I felt were were commensurate with my ambitions, my goals, yes. what I wanted and talent. to put out. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I, I will was, give you that. I, you're I was, modest. I was, I was no, you're very Dang modest, it. but we but, have to say in your talent. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, um, and so that they had to be created. Same mm-hmm. thing. I, I didn't think that what I was doing with Selma alongside these other fantastic producers, Jeremy Kleiner, Dee Dee Gardner, Cameron McCracken. I didn't think I was producing. I just mm-hmm. thought I was trying to see right. my dream realized but that's what producing was and absolutely Mm -hmm. I was absorbing that and also you know in going on to direct this film I was also absorbing being on great sets with great directors and seeing what they do you never stop learning as a as an actor you know drama school was three years I was at the Royal Shakespeare Company for another three years I then did three years of a tv show I went on to work with amazing amazing directors and 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 that's i have this rule larry of the three p's mm-hmm. when i'm trying to pick a project it's it's the part the project and the people yes and the most important is the people if you yeah. are around great people a bit like playing tennis with a great tennis player yeah. your game just goes up and and so yeah. producing wise that has helped me directing now it's been huge for me and so that that's absolutely you know the movies that i've made have been my film school. Yeah, I'll give you another P that I think is important for you too, and I'll say point of view. Um, yes, yes, uh, yes. At, you know, as a writer, I got to add my own, you know. Uh, please, but, uh, I love it. Well, well, when I think of it, I think of point of view because you've had an interesting career. I relate to it a lot. Um, you've been, I'll call, outsider is not quite the word, but mm-hmm. you've been in situations where you've been the particular person in that situation 100%. To bring something different. I mean, you were the first, people have to know this. You were the first black to play a, a king uh, in a Shakespeare production. It was Henry VI in the Royal Shakespeare Company, right? That's correct. That's yeah. huge. People have to know that's huge. I mean, there's there's so much that's interesting about that, you know, <laughs> from yeah. just being cast to play it, for one thing, mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. dealing with being it, you know, and do you bring something different to that, you know, or do you, do you honor like what it, do you think it should be? Like, Mm. what was that process like? It was way more 
um, complicated than I anticipated. Yeah. I didn't know that I was the first black person to play a king at the Royal Shakespeare Company when I got cast as that. It wasn't mm-hmm. till there was a a raft of opposition and grumbling. Wow. And Oh, yeah, there yeah, were newspaper yeah. articles. I mean, I remember it all started with an article in The Telegraph in the UK where an Oxford professor said, we open ourselves to ridicule if we allow what? actors of colour to play these kind of roles. Oh, my God. Um, you know, I, I, I wonder... This is way you, before Bridgerton, you guys. Way before Bridgerton, just so you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this, yeah, this was uh, good, 20... 22 years ago. You're following in the in the hallowed steps of people like John Gilgood or, you know, I think Olivier may have been at RSC. Uh, um, all those people. I wonder where that professor yeah. was when uh, Olivier was playing Othello, by the way. Um, Thank you. There, yeah. Bam! <laughs> exactly. You, you know, or the mm-hmm. sheer amount of white actresses who have played Cleopatra. But, yeah. you know, the, the thing that that mentality fails to acknowledge is that um, Shakespeare's plays have gone on. To, the reason why they endure is because somehow that writer has a, been able to encapsulate humanity in a yeah. way that transcends race, that transcends culture. That's why you can transpose those plays onto so many um, different time periods right. and, 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 and cultures. And, mm-hmm. you know, but regardless, the, the, as you well know, Larry, more than most, that was yet another situation whereby to be excellent mm-hmm. was my primary weapon against yes, that, that. That's prejudice. exactly right. You're, that is so well said that you are yeah. absolutely right. It's a must, in fact. Yeah. 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 And that's where the pressure comes. You know, the, right. the, the, the pressure, you know, what I'm ultimately, what I want for my children is not just the, the, the space and the freedom to succeed. It's also the space and freedom to fail. Yes, the freedom to be mediocre. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, which is, which is, which is true probably, equality. Yes. Yeah, which is probably the definition of of white privilege. Uh, oh, you know, completely. The, the freedom to be mediocre. Um, so you know, but but yeah, I've I've had a few of those in my career, which initially was tough for me. I, I'll be totally mm-hmm. honest, because it's not right. what I set out to do. Um, but one of my heroes is Sidney Poitier, and I can only sure. imagine what that was like for him yeah. being so groundbreaking. And so I stand on on his shoulders and, and thousands of others who have had to do similar. And so I, I've now segued into feeling like a, a privilege and an honor. No, but it's well deserved too. And in a in a different way, uh by playing King, now you're doing it in a different way. Now you're a black British man playing an American icon, a black American icon, and that has its own challenges, but for a black audience rather than the white audience, you know, yeah. what were, what were some of those challenges? Did, did you feel any of that going into it? You're like, Oh yeah, I'm going to play King. Yeah. He was great. I'm an actor. I don't know. What, well, Hey, what's everybody? Hey, calm down, everybody. What's going on? <laughs> well, you although what, you would have, you would have thought that with the British accent, of course. I'm doing Of course. Yes, yeah. yes. I'm putting that spin on it. As yes. I thank you. Thank you very much. Um, but it was the same thing as with, Henry the Sixth. It sort of uh-huh. crept up on me because yeah. we had those seven years of like just all right. my focus was is just trying to get it done. Sure, it wasn't until after we had made the film, and and because 
people didn't, not many people knew me before playing Dr. King. They hadn't mm-hmm. really heard this accent. And yes. so yes. for a lot of people, they were like, oh, great. Okay. A Dr. King yeah. film. And, and they just assumed that I was American. <laughs> and the funniest thing was the Q and A's. Oh my after God. People had seen the film and yes. I would come out and start talking like this. And you would just, you would just, oh. you would just hear this slow rumble. Oh. through the audience and you and the funniest is when oh, we would man. be in places like atlanta or you know and they'd be like what is he why is he playing yeah What's he doing right now and they, i thought david was from new orleans man what's going on here oh yellow that's come on man that's a creole name you can't you can't trick me <laughs> oh man so yeah it wasn't until afterwards that people you, you know, like, huh, should a British guy be playing Dr. King or whatever? Oh, but wow. again, I think the yeah. quality of the film shielded me. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I think we got away with it. Oh, completely, completely. So let's talk about directing a bit. And uh, I read that you, it kind of happened by accident, you uh, directing this film. Is that right? It did. You know, um, as, as I say, I had come to it purely as a producer, uh, as an, an an actor, but, you know, we had spent, films are tough to get made. Yeah, they really you, are. You know, God bless you. They, they, are, they are mini so startups, you know, yeah. even if you're making a small film, yeah. you're, you're trying to raise hundreds of thousands and it's still a low budget film when you're into the low millions. And yeah. that's a lot of money. Because you have to uh, talk someone into <laughs> letting go of that money. Oh, and it may be bye bye for good that money, yeah. Which, which it often is. It often it, is, yes, exactly. You, you know, mm-hmm. so that's that's why they are often very tough to get off the ground. And and for, like I say, I found the script in 2015. Four years had passed of us continuing to develop the film, mm-hmm. trying to the script, trying to raise the money, and we had got to that sort of Elysium moment where it's like mm-hmm. we have the script, we have the actor, we have the start date. This company, Shiv Hans, had come in with the money. And and Lonnie Chavis, who was like finding a needle in a haystack in terms mm-hmm. of his talent and having all the qualities you needed for this film, mm-hmm. you know, people who see the film, he is in a very rarefied sort of age in the film. He's 11 and that's mm-hmm. the age Lonnie was when we, when we shot the film. And it's just old enough that he can believe in the myth of the Waterman, but, uh, but he also needs to be, well, he needs to be young enough that he believes in that myth and then old enough that he can quantify and process the fact that his mother is ill enough mm-hmm. that she needs real help. And those things, to, those two things colliding is what sets the adventure off. And he's going to go and find the waterman who supposedly has the gift of immortality and he can somehow gift that to his ill mother. Mm-hmm. So we knew that if we didn't go soon, Lonnie was going to age out of that. You know, you start hitting 12, 13, mm-hmm. it's not so believable that you're believing necessarily in the Waterman as a, as a myth that will make you risk life and limb to go and search him out. Mm-hmm. And so we had a ticking clock, basically. And that's why when Emma Nidell, our writer, turned to me and said, David, you've been on this journey with me. You have such a strong point of view on it. You know you want it to be a family of color. You know the films that are the inspiration for you to do it you know the themes that you want to imbue this thing with you should be the one to do it and I had to take two weeks of a pause just to kind of go "Ooh, that's mm-hmm. 
no small thing to direct a movie. Uh, and, you know, our budget was north of $10 million. And, you know, in the grand scheme of movie making, that's not a huge amount, but for a directorial debut, that's a chunk sure. of change. Absolutely. You know, so, um, but, you know, I, I decided to feel the fear and do it anyway. Was the film initially written or conceived as a black family or was it not indicated uh, that way? Was it something that you brought to yourself? Or? Yeah, it was a white family. Uh, mm-hmm. It was set in Montana. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. All you was- had to tell me was it was set in Montana. I would have assumed <laughs> it was. Just so, just so you know how, how it works here in America, dude. <laughs> well, Larry was set in Montana. Oh, it was a white family. Oh, okay. <laughs> true. True that. Um, so, so, yeah. you know, And this is where what you said earlier is so key, point of view. You know, mm-hmm. right. without my point of view as part of the equation, mm-hmm. this film doesn't get told through that lens. That doesn't mean it's a bad film. It doesn't mean right. that it's, it is not uh, worthy of being made. Mm-hmm. It actually is just one of the things I'm most proud of is that it's very rarely seen Correct. in this genre in this type of movie. Absolutely. And that's also why, you know, producing is so important to me because I learned that specific lesson on Selma. We went from two white male directors to two black male directors to a black female director. And each Mm -hmm. time the Mm -hmm. script skewed towards their point of view. And Mm -hmm. it was so interesting, the effect it had on the script. The initial script was centered primarily on Lyndon Johnson. Dr. King was a supporting character. Wow. You, you know, and to go from that to Ava's perspective, where Dr. King is the central character, but not only him, but there were now female characters that were worthy of actresses, Absolutely. the likes of Oprah and Tessa Thompson and Lorraine Toussaint and Carmen Ajogo, that they were non-existent yeah. in the other permutations. And so point of view is so key. Absolutely. And one of the things that is interesting when I think of these movies that aren't made is that if it's a small movie and there's black people, black family, and there's something bad going on, there's what we would call black pain involved, you know, that there has to be something political about it or sociological that we're talking about for everybody to go, okay, we can watch black people suffering, you know, but this is just a normal family. uh, When I say normal, something that any family, regardless of who you are, might go through something like this. It doesn't have anything to do with, with a institutional structure, structural racism or that type of thing. That to me, as simple as that sounds, it's not easy to make those types of films. A hundred percent. Because there, because there is a box in which we are allowed to thrive. Yeah. And, and outside of that box, it becomes the preserve of a different demographic of person to tell that That's kind right. of story, unfortunately. Um, you know, it's why so many of my generation of actors and the generation of actors above mine, they got mm-hmm. their breaks playing historical figures yeah. because those were some of the only opportunities we can break out from, you know, that's yeah. why Denzel, it's Malcolm X. That's why, yeah. you know, you, you, you have Chiwetel Ejiofor and it's 12 Years a Slave or, uh-huh. or Idris is playing Mandela. You know, it, you know, now we just had Daniel Kaluuya with Fred Hampton. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's so often only a role that a white person couldn't play. 
that yeah. gives us the opportunity to be in a bigger movie that has a bigger reach. And, you know, that thing of, of, of it having something to do racially or politically is somehow what elevates it. But, yeah. you know, the radical thing is when we are allowed to exist in a complex way outside yes. of that purview. Exactly. And, you know, I, I think more and more, you, you're hearing that a lot more in the consciousness, in the culture, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, you, you know, this, this, the, 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 the pornographication, if that's even a word of sure. our pain, sure. you know, where, where it's sort of sensationalized and, and, and sort of constantly wheeled out as a trope. And, um, and look, those stories are important, but mm-hmm. I think it's just as radical to have a universal human story that anyone and everyone can relate to regardless of where they're from. Yeah, it's good to be able to have both, to be able to play in either of those pools if you have a good story. And it's interesting because by having to play, as you say, those historical figures or that, it's the only type of rosary that has the um, the room to show chops, which right. is why when you talk about Oscar So White, many of the reasons that people of color don't get nominated. It's not so much that they're overlooked is that many times they don't get the parts with the chops, right. You know, (laughs) to show the chops, you know, because they relegated to such, you know, particular types of roles. And that's why when you see the history of the people that have won, it's usually a role like that, you know, yeah, as opposed to just something that, you know, a Hanks might play, you know, a Forrest Gump type of character or somebody that's just quirky, you know, and that type of thing that, doesn't have those other things. I, it feels like that's opening up more, which I think I've always argued for this and pushed for this. I think is a great thing. Yeah, I think to if have you both. Look at, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, if you look at the role Daniel Kaluuya got nominated for in Get Out or Riz yeah. Ahmed recently. Oh, Riz sound, was fantastic. Yeah, so so yeah. brilliant in that yeah. film. Sound Sound of Metal. Yeah, Sound of Metal. Yeah, you know that yeah. that's a shift that that was not that was not happening a few years ago. So you know, I I think I think yeah, you know, we we can't rest on our laurels, but uh, we we've got to keep pushing pushing that narrative. Yeah, what was the so. Now you're directing the film. What's the most intimidating thing before you start directing? Like before cameras roll, what to you were you going, oh shit, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I hope this part goes well. (laughs) Yeah, you know, for me specifically, because it was a film that I was also in. Yes, yes. I was very, very nervous about being the worst thing about my own film right, because right. I was so distracted by right. the, everything else that my did, performance was going to suffer. How did David Oyelowo get in this film directed by David Oyelowo? I guess he knew the producer. I guess that's how he got in. <laughs> yes, but I tell you what, it did keep me up at night because, you know, it's funny. I had worked with Angelina Jolie not long before uh-huh. directing the film and she also you know, as people know, she directs as well. And she gave me this piece of advice. She said, make sure in a bid to not seem like you're focusing more on your performance than everyone else's, that you don't shortchange yourself by doing Mm -hmm. less takes or moving on before you know you have it in the can when it comes to your own performance, because it's an easy mistake to make. Mm -hmm. And because you know how much you need to get in the can before the end of the day, you know um, that, you know, there are so many other things happening alongside the need to get your performance. There is a danger that you sort of just rush it. And it was really great to have that 
on my mind, but also I made sure I had my wife on set with me because she knows me more than anyone else. Mm -hmm. And she would be able to call BS on any phoning in of a performance I was giving, Um, you know, and I, and I had some great producers there with me as well, but that was the thing. That was the thing I was really nervous about. Yeah. Outside of the technical part of directing, what's the, what's the biggest uh, mind shift from acting to directing, you know, the biggest uh, mindset that you have to be in as a director that you found most important. It's it's the difference is, you know, as an actor, you're the president of a country. Mm-hmm. As the director, you're the president of the entire globe. <laughs> you, you, you know, it's, wow. it's, it's like, wow. and, you've, and you've, and there are so many other things you have to take care of as well as that country that someone else is shepherding. But, the, mm-hmm. you know, a director um, by the name of, uh, Will Gluck, he directed the Peter Rabbit movies and, mm-hmm. and he did uh, Easy A and this film Annie as well. He he gave me a great piece of advice just before direct, uh, I, I directed my film. He said, David, no one cares about your movie. Yeah. And I said, whoa, that's a that's kind of a intense statement. What do you mean? He said, on your set, the DP only cares, the director of photography only cares about their shots. The costume designer only cares about their costume. The actors only care about their their performances. You are the only one who cares about the totality of what's going on. And if you move on because your DP comes to you and says, oh, I think we got it. I got it. Because he's just seen that he got the perfect sunset, the perfect framing, and that's what he cares about. There's a real chance you didn't get the performance. Mm -hmm. You didn't get the the, the nuance you were looking for, you know, whatever it is. And and that was such a great piece of advice to, Mm -hmm. to selfishly make sure that you're not just feeding off of any given individual who are important to the process, but you at the end of the day, if you don't have it in the can and you get to that edit and you're in trouble, you are the only one to blame as the yeah. director. You, you have to, you have to bring it all together. Not just yeah. that, just, just that performance. I've always, uh, I heard the expression when I was in, in school, actually, you know, to be a, a really good actor, you kind of have to be an athlete of the heart, you know, Right, And uh, I've used that expression for writing too, but I think to be a director, you kind of have to be an athlete of all of your senses. Yes. Because they're all operating at the same time. And particularly yeah. if you're an actor who's directing, you know, your sense that is the highest is the performance, but now there's the visual that's happening, mm-hmm. you know, as you say, problems that are always an issue, you know, that have mm-hmm. nothing to do with performance or something that could come into play. Who's the most important ally? Is it your director of photography while you're shooting? So you can, if you have a good DP, at least you can relax a little bit when that, when that, uh, bond is good, you know, with that person and you can focus more on performing with the actors. Is, is that fair to say? It's a great question. Cause um, I, I mean, I know how important a good cast is too. That's yes. also an important ally as well. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think so. I think the director yeah. of photography is not only your greatest ally, but your greatest protection. Yes, because um, the because movie the movie is beautiful, by the way. It's gorgeously gorgeous. There's one particular shot, David, that's beautiful, where it's the water shot where they're swimming. Oh, it's yes. Just, it's a gorgeous shot. 
you know. Thank you. Thank very you. beautiful. Thank yeah. You. yeah, Matt Lloyd, yeah. Uh, Matthew J. Lloyd, who's my, my director of photography, he, he was such an incredible find. I did a short film with him, and uh-huh. I just, he, he has that thing where he can just throw a camera on his back and just create magic. But then he had just come off of doing the new Spider-Man movie as well. Wow. So he had the ability to do size and he mm-hmm. had the ability to be, uh, do the intimate, but also that sort of guerrilla filmmaking of, you know, whatever we need to do to get the shot. And people who see the film will see that we're in fairly rugged terrain. You know, mm-hmm. we are in the forest, we're up rock faces where, you know, where we are underwater, we're going yeah. over a log, over a rushing river. You know, there's a lot going on. And he found cameras and lenses that were mobile and, mm-hmm. and nimble enough to get to all those places. He was my greatest ally because, you know, this is my first film. Mm-hmm. And what you need to be able to do as a director to even remotely come close to achieving good storytelling is to communicate your vision in a way that people can take it and elevate it. Mm-hmm. And he was able to assimilate my vision and just give it size, color, scope, depth, mm-hmm. feeling, emotion, you know. And, and I, I'm, I'm, I was, I'm green enough in my journey as a director to, I know it when I see it, right. but I couldn't necessarily say, oh, use the 50 or you yeah. know, give me an anamorphic <laughs> lens here or whatever. Sure. I just had to almost emote what I was looking for. He mm-hmm. then had to translate and interpret that into visual form. And so, yes, I, I would say he was, he was my greatest um, ally in, in this endeavor. One of my favorite directors is Mike Nichols. Um, mm, yeah. um, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf and the graduate to have those first two films out of the box, completely different Crazy. yet completely yeah. iconic. It's yeah. just I can watch those two over and over. It's just fascinating. And yeah. as visual as Nichols was, he was a real actor's director and he insisted, yeah. he did intensive rehearsals ahead yeah. of time. And rehearsal was important to your process as well, right? I think this is where, as as an actor, one of the main things you, you bring if you're directing is you direct people the way you would like to be directed. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, and, and I think what I, the two things I tried to do was to create an environment that made the best possible performance from the actors possible, mm-hmm. but also rehearsal, you know, despite it being a constrained time period, which it always is. You never yes, have it. It always time. is. You just have to <laughs> insist on it. Yeah. Yeah. Literally right. had to insist on it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and particularly when you have young performers like Lonnie and Amaya mm-hmm. who, you know, had to have real chemistry with each other, but mm. they were also, you know, they, they were borderline action stars in this thing with what they were having to do, the terrain they yeah. were having to traverse, the emotional themes that they were having to mm-hmm. sort of uh, uh, emote and, mm-hmm. and, and be within. Um, and so we, we rehearsed a fair bit. We rehearsed one of the most precious bits of rehearsal that was invaluable was Rosario Dawson and Lonnie because um, that mother and son bond was literally the heart of the movie. If you didn't believe their love for each other, Mm -hmm. you couldn't really understand why this kid goes on this journey. The stakes had to be set by that relationship. And so, yes, we we rehearsed. And one of the mistakes, Larry, I find with... Very good directors sometimes, but mm-hmm. it's often not very good directors, is this lack of 
compassion actually for <laughs> how how difficult telling the truth of humanity mm. is on a film set with all yeah. of that artifice, the uh. lights, the mics, the cameras, the, the crew walking back and front in your periphery. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so, you know, even just simple things like rehearsing first, then bringing the crew in, then putting the marks down and lighting it around what the actors have organically done is different than what you often get um, which is, oh, you arrive on the set, the marks are down, it's lit, the cameras are in place, stand there, do your lines. It's just very difficult to, I think, have real agency, creativity mm-hmm. and bravery when you feel like a puppet um, uh, under those given circumstances. And so that's, I think, the main thing I bring as a director is creating mm-hmm. an environment, hopefully, where actors can can do good work. I think that's great because you're absolutely right. I mean, to the audience, it just feels real. You know, they're just in the scene. Of course, they're upset. Of course, they're crying here. You right. know? But people don't realize there's an artifice that's happening that's there. And one of the toughest things for an actor to reproduce or to have is what we would call public solitude. You know, the, yes. the ability to be in public, but to be alone, you know, yes. and, and to create a safe space for being alone. Um, it's so difficult. I mean, it must be, it's great to have someone like Rosario Dawson to act besides, you know, when you had to do some difficult things too. I mean, when I say difficult, because you're directing it too, and you, you know, got to make sure that you're present for that. Was it, it must have been nice having Rosario there, you know, by your side to act against, right? Again, going back to my tennis analogy, you know, when you're when you're around a great player, it ups your game. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I and, and this is often when I'm talking to younger actors as well, because what you said there about public solitude, I haven't heard it so succinctly and perfectly put. Is that something you learn doing theater? That's as right. Well? Absolutely. You know, Every night you're in front of this audience and you have to find that space to tell that truth, you know, and that's why some of our greatest actors have really spent quite a bit of time in the theater. And that's what they bring to to Mm -hmm. movies as well. Yeah. There's a, a difference between naturalism and realism. You know, Mm. some people don't make that distinction. Many people feel that naturalism is acting, but it isn't really you know, whereas realism is reproducing life, you know, right. in a way that is dynamic and has an emotional range. Whereas naturalism is making it seem like something is an artificial maybe. And it's just, it's just the first level to reproducing something that has, that is going to be vivid, you know? Yes. And yes. there's a difference between that, you know, and some people confuse the two and yes. to especially get out of young actors where they're not just being naturalistic, but there's a vividness to their inner life. And I thought, uh, uh, the kid, uh, man, Lonnie, he, Lonnie Chavis, Lonnie, yeah. I mean, his role was so complex, David, um, because he's going through this thing, but the character, this is just my interpretation of the character was a sunny character, not a, a cloudy character. You yeah. know, he yeah. was, you know, that's what he he seemed like one of those kids where it's like, it's going to be a good day type of kid and has to learn about this burden, which is not an easy thing to play that, that, you know, that penumbra, you know, the area in there, you know? I mean, I mean, I, I, I am not exaggerating when I talk about him in relation to a needle in a haystack. It's such what, what he does in the film, you can't teach. 
Yeah, because um, he, he's a winning kid. He's yeah. that that's how he is in that other show he's in. He has a winning type of quality about him. So, you know, to do that, but still that's what I mean by realism. You still have to be vivid. You can't just pull that back. Right. You know. And and that's what you need when you have a film that is talking about the impending loss of a parent. You know, yeah. in order for it to not feel like a downer of a movie, you need to constantly feel the light. You need to feel his imagination, his adventure, his love mm-hmm. for his mother. That is literally what the film is surfing on, is the openness of his spirit, in a mm-hmm. sense. And and he also has this quality whereby he is able to say as much when he's not speaking as when yeah. he is, which again is something you can't teach and is certainly very rare in an 11 year old. Yes. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I, you know, so much of what this film um, is in terms of its, its good qualities really uh, centers around that, that beautiful central performance by Lonnie Chavis. Yeah, and to give you more props again, too, you know, to have a film with a kid not be considered a kid's movie. Not right. that that's a bad thing, but, mm-hmm. you know, he is dealing with real decisions that have consequence, you know, mm-hmm. that we can all relate to at any age. Is is this the, do you want to do more of these types of films? I know you're interested in doing, I won't say family films, but I know that, you know, when you talk about what you're inspired by, I'm sure, you know, the Spielbergs and those type of people, is, is that the type of road that you want to do as a filmmaker, do you think? I just love films that can speak to the entirety of humanity. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think the, 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 the phrase family film has sort of got yeah. pushed, pushed into kids film. Yeah, and I didn't want it to be a pejorative because there's a good no, form no, no, of that. But, but yeah. no, but I, I, it's the right phrase. Mm-hmm. It's the, because I want to, I want to make films that kids, their parents, and their grandparents mm-hmm. can watch together. So it's the right phrase. Yeah. It's just the way it's been skewed. And and when I think of those Amblin films that Spielberg and John Hughes and and people mm-hmm. like this made back in the day. I love that. Those are the kind of films I love watching with my kids as well. And Mm -hmm. I actually think that they have huge cultural and societal value because Mm -hmm. my, one of my primary ambitions is that people will watch a film like the Waterman and it'll elicit a conversation Mm -hmm. about the true nature of love. The fact that dysfunction and love within a family don't have to be something that are mutually exclusive. Most families have both, and it's about how much love and how much work can be done to overcome the dysfunction. That, that's why I, I really wanted to play that father and son dynamic in the film mm-hmm. um, of, of, you know, a father who is misunderstanding his son, has this pressure of what's going on with his... But there's love there, and mm-hmm. they sort of just needed to find their way back to each other. Spielberg did this so brilliantly. I mean, you watch E.T., that mm-hmm. film starts with the family dealing with the fact that the husband and father has gone. The, the film is about loss and abandonment. Yeah. That's yeah. what it's about. Yeah. And, and, and the, the company that does it so brilliantly these days is Pixar. You know, when yes, you of, absolutely. Oh, you know, incredible uh, is about midlife crisis. Uh, you know, soul is about existential questions of where do we go when we die? Uh, I mean, Pixar. Uh, so good. So good. So yeah. good. And, and why we shouldn't have that in a live action context 
I don't, I don't really know. So when you ask me what kind of films I want to make, my focus is, I, I guess you could say is live action Pixar and yeah, it, yeah. That's it, great. It's Afri- African stories for a global audience. I think Africa, you know, I'm, I'm of Nigerian origin. I've done so many films there. I lived in Nigeria for seven years. There's mm-hmm. just so much rich culture and so many of the stories that we tell in the West are plagiarisms of, you know, folklore and myth mm. that started on that continent anyway. Um, and so, you know, to tell those stories, to tell that history, to to celebrate um, um, that that place of origin for humanity is is a, is a big focus of mine as well. I'm so happy you said that because I think we're getting a a kind of a nice very varied black experience in filmmaking and acting, that sort of thing. I talked about the black, you know, Brits, but many of the black Brits have another, you know, (laughs) connection, as you say, Africa. Mm -hmm. And I talked to Steve McQueen recently about small acts and some of the stuff that he's been doing and who directed 12 years of slave, of course, and that sort of thing. I think Nigeria is having a moment though. Now in America, you know, I feel there's an energy happening here with, some of the, because I've met some writers from Nigeria. They're not known yet, but they will be known. They're very talented, you know, and we see it in some actors, uh, um, people like yourself. Is there a movement happening over in Nigeria that's coming over here? There's stories that are on their way that are kind of aching to be told. Do you think that we're going to see more of? For sure. I mean, it's been bubbling for a while. Yeah, I mean, and what's in the water go- in Nigeria besides the <laughs> besides these princes who want me to send money? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you know not to do that, obviously, Larry. Yes, um, exactly. Well, thank God they don't they don't go after me so much. <laughs> well, you think about it. One mm-hmm. in every four Africans is a Nigerian. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's the most populous nation on that continent. Um, you know, Nollywood is the second third, Mm -hmm. maybe second biggest film industry in the world, the Nigerian uh, film industry. You have, you know, Afrobeat, for instance, as, as a, as a, as a music that has, you know, been going on for decades, but has now, you know, is being assimilated by people like Beyonce and, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and is permeating world music. So many fashion designers uh, Mm -hmm. are from, like you say, actors, novelists, you know, you you have uh, Chimamanda Adichie and Gozi Chimamanda Adichie. So, you know, John Boyega, Chiwetel Ejiofor, you you Mm -hmm. know, there is, there is a groundswell of creativity. And I, what I think it is, Larry, is it's a, it's a confluence of a generational shift from a preoccupation with academia, you know, Mm. which is definitely what my parents had. They didn't want me to be an actor. You know, you didn't encourage your kids to be, you know, and that's kind of an immigrant mentality as well. Absolutely. And it's a post-colonial mentality, you know, Um, I'm going to, it's a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer that was sort of drilled into them, you know, as the professions of note, um, you know, leading up to the 60s when most of those countries were, were, you know, the colonization stopped, as it were. Yeah, because it had the combination of respectability and a way out financially. Both of those things were important. Respectability being very high on the list. Right. Yes, Hugely. Mm-hmm. And, and so now those 
those parents, uh, uh, you know, or, or my generation, I should say, maybe the generation just above my, there's a sort of opening up because they see evidence of success oh. in those avenues. And so they are not only open to, but now encouraging their kids mm-hmm. to be actors, musicians, fashion designers, novelists, as opposed to just those sort of academic professions. Yeah. And then you combine that with the fact that it is a storytelling oral tradition in that country anyway with all of that rich culture so the two things our cultural history the wealth of it the richness of it meeting up with this moment whereby people are going oh that is something to do because they're seeing evidence of success so it's manifesting in this explosion Mm -hmm. globally of a celebration of not just not just our talents, but the talent combined with a cultural specificity that yeah. is now steeped in pride, especially as in the West, we're dealing with fatigue from mm-hmm. sequels and prequels and right. burnt out IP and absolutely and done it. And so we want this influx of something fresh. I couldn't agree more. And I'm a big believer in what I love coming up with terms for things. It's just something that I like to do. But, I, I uh, can tell, Larry. Yeah, I I know. <laughs> but uh, cultural clustering is, uh, it sounds a little awkward, but basically what it is, is I believe that things, um, there are cultural phenomena that happen in clusters. And for they're hard to explain, whatever, the, the Renaissance movement in Europe you know, the paintings that came out of that time where like, what happened? How did all these talented people happen to be in the same place at the same time? You know, right, right. the industrial revolution, you know, in America and some of the, the things that happened in the 20th century, the, the digital revolution now and where it's clustering and those sorts of things. But this artistic cluster that's coming out of some of these regions like Nigeria to me are no accident. And they, ha- they mushroom, you know, they happen over a certain period of time, but it's almost like a water hose, the, the way that you described it, where it was kind of kept taut and now it's let loose and man, it's just going everywhere. And it's very exciting. The things that are going to, that I think you're right. Cause there are generations now that are going to be influenced by this generation and it's going to explode even more. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, You know, I I remember when I was coming up as an actor, the only black actors you really saw in the UK were of West Indian descent. It was very rare to see a West African or just an African name on a, on a call sheet or in a play or whatever you, you, you come, I'm in the UK currently shoot, shooting a show here and you know, every other name is like a, an African name and, and it's, 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 it's a completely different ball game. And so clearly something has happened. There's been a shift. There has been, uh, you know, uh, this cultural cluster, as, as you say, um, that is, that is manifesting. It's undeniable. Mm-hmm. It's so evident. Right. Absolutely. What's coming up next for you, David? Are you, is the next thing a directing thing and acting thing and producing thing and all three? I mean, <laughs> what do we have to look forward to? Oh man. Well, I, I just produced another film called Solitary. Uh, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, it's, it's my company's seventh film that we've, we've produced. And that one's been uh-huh. directed by, uh, uh, Nate Parker and a very, very different kind of film. Um, you know, about a, a guy who's just coming out of seven years of solitary confinement. Oh, wow. And is trying to, find his way back into society because of the detrimental psychological effects solitary confinement has. It's kind of like the pandemic, what we've all been going through. Literally, literally, you know, yeah, yeah, the title solitary has suddenly become even more pertinent than, than when the the film was originally conceived. So, you know, that, that's going to be coming out soon. Um, Oh, great. 
you know, I have Peter Rabbit 2 coming out in the, in, in June um, okay. in the States. Uh, I'm shooting a, a, a HBO Max limited series here called The Girl Before right now with um, uh, Gugu Mbata-Raw. So that oh, should be in, in, in my She's one soon. of my favorites. She's, she's just amazing. Yeah, truly, yeah. truly phenomenal. Very close friend of mine as well. Um, and yeah, the, 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 like I say, you know, more, more producing. Uh, my wife and I just signed this first look deal with Disney. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Thank you. So we're hoping to, to, to make some uh, big movies over there. And, and the, the idea is to so much of what we've touched on yeah. in this conversation is that what we want to do more of going forward. Sounds good. We'll have to see you and Google on the big screen doing like father of the bride type of thing. <laughs> those things, all those types of spent Tracy Hepburn movies is what you guys can do. All those. You heard it here yeah. first, guys. You heard it here first. <laughs> uh, David Yellow, you guys, the Waterman, it's in theaters now, I believe. Yes, um, it is. is it on streaming as well or? It will be uh, uh, on, on Netflix internationally later okay. in the year. But for now, it's, uh, it's in movie theaters and, and bound to be in a movie theater near you. It is the type of thing that the entire family can enjoy. And uh, it's just really, really good stuff. Congratulations, David. It's such a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. What a delight. Thanks, Larry. I really appreciate it. Great. Good luck with the film. David Yellow, well, you guys, The Waterman. Go see it. Get vaccinated and go see it. <laughs> <laughs> Had to get that in. Had to That's get right. That in. Thanks, David.